Welcome everyone to another podcast from Freshfield Bruckhaus Derringer's Silicon Valley office. We have a special guest today, and we have a topic that we know a lot of folks are going to want to listen to and talk about, which is SPACs. When people come up with the meme for 2021, there will probably be a race. Is it about the vaccine or is it about the SPACs? So we're going to focus on the latter today, not the former. Our special guest today is Professor Michael Klausner of Stanford. Michael is the Nancy and Charles Munger Professor of Business and a professor of law at Stanford Law School. He has an economics background. Full disclosure, he and I have been friends through law school, which shows you how dated we both are. Michael is the leading academic observer of, analyst of SPACs in the United States. And his writings and analysis of it, I think, have been very in-depth and very insightful. And I hope you'll see, we didn't have him on this because we thought he'd be a cheerleader for SPACs. My colleagues, Pamela Marcolese, who's a founder of the Silicon Valley office and one of our experts on governance issues and capital markets, And we're also very proud to have Michael Levitt, who's in our New York office, but a kindred spirit of the Silicon Valley office. Michael led a team that analyzed in depth every SPAC deal done in 2020. And somewhere adjacent to this podcast, we'll have a link that you can click on for it. But again, it wasn't your typical law firm client alert pablum. It was substantive. So with that, welcome everyone. Probably anybody who would bother to listen to this already knows what a SPAC is. But Pam, if I could trouble you to just sort of walk through the relationship between a SPAC, a traditional IPO, a direct listing, and other ways of accessing capital. Sure. Thanks, Boris. So I have to say that 2020 was a pretty exciting year in the capital markets. And I think that one of the principal features of that is that there are so many ways that companies can consider going public. So everybody knows about the IPO that's tried and tested for a while. Direct listings, one of the major developments was that earlier this year, the SEC approved a rule that allows companies to access primary capital in doing a direct listing, which means that you can be listed on a stock exchange also while raising capital, but without the use of underwriters. And then, of course, the SPAC, which took off in full force at the end of last year. The SPAC is essentially an alternative way of going public pursuant to which a target company negotiates with a SPAC and their sponsor an M&A transaction. And following that process, there is a vote of the shareholders and registration statement that is filed and approved by the SEC. And at the end of it, all the company winds up being publicly listed on the stock exchange. So the thing about it is that each of these options are a little bit different. They all offer pros and cons. And there is a lot of room for companies to evaluate both the upsides and the downsides of the various options and decide what is best for them. There's not necessarily a better or worse option, but they are all different and they allow companies to really maximize what it is that is most important to them. So let's say that that Mike Klausner has an enterprise that he thinks is ready to go public. And he calls you to his board of directors meeting and says, all right, advise us on this. Are you finding typically that entrepreneurs are looking at all three or do they typically look at one versus a second one? 
And what do you tell them to guide them on that? I think there's really been an evolution on this, Boris. I think historically, people would look at IPOs and M&A exits concurrently. I think that continues to be the case in certain instances. But more recently, people started focusing on IPOs and direct listings. And for the longest time, you couldn't raise capital in the direct listing. And so companies would think whether or not that was really the best option. What we're seeing increasingly frequently these days is companies thinking about IPOs and SPACs concurrently and really thinking about what process might allow them to achieve the best possible valuation. And of course, if you run a concurrent process, while it can be a little bit more work for the management team, it is really a costless option at the end of the day because it does give you optionality and you can decide what option is best for you. So in terms of advice, there isn't really a one size fits all advice. Again, each of the models have pros and cons, but I think being able to consider the puts and takes really will be important. So valuation is obviously one of them in a SPAC process you have to consider bringing the SPAC into your company that oftentimes comes with board representation. It oftentimes comes with a concentrated shareholder that's being added to your cap table. But the trade-off is that you're negotiating directly with a sophisticated counterparty. If you have a pipe investment, it can be several other sophisticated counterparties, but it's a much smaller group of investors that you're negotiating with as opposed to trying to explain your company's business model through a traditional IPO roadshow process. And so depending on how complicated it is, depending on the stage of growth of your company, that can present obvious advantages by going this back route. I want to turn to the work that Levitt and team did Michael, if people want to, if they can't find the link here and they want to Google it, what's the title of the report that they should search for? Yes, thanks, Boris. The The title of the report is the Freshfields DSPAC Debrief 2020. Very easy to find um, on, on Google. First of all, why did you do this? It was a huge amount of work. Why did you decide to write about this? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. We did this because there was nothing like this out there and clients were asking questions. You know, we, we were working on DSPAC deals ourselves and uh, we, we were looking through the precedent and clients would ask questions uh, about, you know, what, what's the market and the different points. And there really is no data out there. Uh, that no one had really looked at the DSPAC side of this. You know, in 2020, it was really IPO hysteria for SPACs. There were 248 SPAC IPOs in 2020. There was a lot of focus on all the SPAC IPOs during the year. I think there was a little less focus on the SPAC M&A, but Pam and others at Freshfields and I were all working on SPAC M&A. And so we thought there was a real opportunity there to do a study on SPAC M&A, which was getting a little bit less attention from the public. To someone who doesn't understand what you did, i.e. me, what was your methodology? At the end of the year, there were 64 uh, DSPAC deals done. Uh, that means a, a SPAC you know, did an acquisition. All the information is, is public. So we read the merger agreements. We read the stockholders agreements. We read the sponsor agreements. We read the pipe subscription agreements. Every deal has you know, eight, nine, ten basic documents. They're all filed publicly with the SEC. And so we read all the documents. So for each deal, we had about 50 or 60 different categories of data and we sifted through all these documents for each deal to try to find the right data. You know, was the company listed on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange? Did the sponsors forfeit equity or not? If the sponsor forfeited equity, did they forfeit shares or did they forfeit warrants? You know, what percentage of the consideration to the sellers was cash versus stock? You know, all these kinds of questions. 
What were your key findings in the report? And were there any that surprised you given the work you'd done on SPAC merger transactions? A lot of the data was very consistent with what we were seeing ourselves in the market, you know, having working on a lot of these deals. You know, what we found was, you know, a pipe financing of SPAC deals has become ubiquitous this year. You know, 90, you know, I think 90% of the deals were financed by either a pipe or some other equity financing. That was consistent with what we were seeing. Deals were going really quickly. The average deals were filed with the SEC within 21 days of signing very, very, very fast. The deals were closing on average four and a half months after signing, median three and a half months. Sponsors were giving up a little bit of their equity. Sponsors were subjecting some of their equity to vesting. A lot of the basic terms that you see in public M&A, such as, uh, you know, indemnification by the sellers, the minority of deals have that. Or, you know, termination fees, minority of deals, you know, have that. So we found consistent with what we were seeing in our actual deal process, we found the terms. And the thing that surprised me the most of it, all the data, was, and it confirmed again how, what I felt we were seeing, was the speed of deals. One deal filed the very day of signing. You know, seven deals filed with the SEC within five days of signing. I mean, it's very, very hard to do that as a lawyer, you know, to get your 150-page document filed with the SEC after you've been working for two months on a deal. So things were done very fast, and it's only accelerated into January. Deals are going very, very quickly. So this is probably hard to tell from the data, but how can a party do meaningful diligence on such an expedited transaction. And this is definitely something that we, we've been thinking about as we're doing our deals. The SPACs are doing due diligence on targets. I mean, it's it's not quite maybe like an underwriter does due diligence, but you know, there's a data room set up. The lawyers review the documents. You sit down with the management, go over their financial projections. You go over their historical financial statements. You talk to the auditors. The financial statements are still audited, but PCAOB compliant audits are still done through SPACs, and you you review those. You talk to them about it. If there are third-party experts, you talk to them. There is an amount of diligence done. I don't know if it's necessarily done at the same level as an underwritten IPO, but there still is a fair amount of work done. Everything you just talked about observing, I think that Professor Klausner has views on, and we're going to wrap up at the end by him laying out what he thinks are potential disclosure issues that he's uncovered from digging through specs. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask Mike Klausner, how did you get on to this topic? And was it already a big deal? Or did your colleagues say, why are you wasting time on specs? I got into this when a in a course I teach on business transactions, guest speaker described a merger with a SPAC. He was on the um, target side and he was describing a SPAC. I had never heard of a SPAC before. This is about two and a half years ago. He described the sponsor promote and the warrants that everybody gets. And at some point I said, hold hold on a second. I don't get this. Are you saying that there's all these, in effect, free shares being given out and free warrants in effect being given out? And he said, well, that's how it works. And I said, that makes no sense. And he said, I'm on the target side. Don't blame me. (laughs) Um, So first time I I wrote a paper, collected data on SPACs that went public in 2015. I wrote a paper. I presented it for the first time saying, this is the most obscure topic I have ever researched and that I have ever spoken about. And that's how it started. And between then and now, I threw away the old data 
And I started over again as SPACs became hot and hotter and now hottest. So that even, you know, earlier on, people were saying, oh, no, look, you're behind the times. You can't use that 2015 data. Literally, there are people who've said to me, listen, your data set stops in mid-2020. You can't do that. You've got to collect the second half of 2020, which I'm happy Michael did. So it's been a moving target, but I got into it long before SPACs were cool. So you had a piece that I know was available, I think, late in 2020, that's a very comprehensive review of SPACs. What is the title? We're going to, again, we're going to link to that for the people who are listening, but what is the title of that if somebody wants to search for it? It's called A Sober Look at SPACs. So we're going to direct people to that, but I have questions for you about some of the areas you examined. First of all, is there anybody you need to give a shout out to on the research, or is this mainly you? Well, no, I really, I really should. My two co-authors are Michael Arogi, who teaches at NYU Law School and joined me on this when he was a Stanford student. He's a JD PhD, so he's doing his PhD when we got started. And then uh, a woman named Emily Ruin, who began as a junior in college research assistant and became so valuable. And then, fortunately for us, had her initial job as a management consultant uh, put off until November. She worked with us full time from June until November, and she is now a co-author and uh, well deserving of that. And I take it there no particular entity is funding this where somebody might say, oh, they had an agenda. No. no. Okay. So with respect to the cost of going public, did you find any trends on the cost of going public via SPAC merger as opposed to either traditional IPO or direct listing? Yeah, you know, in a sense, that was the focus of the paper or the study. And it's a complicated answer, and I don't know if we want to break it up into pieces. But I can tell you, if I go to the very end of the analysis, that at the moment, if you are a target and you want to go public by merging with a SPAC, it could well be cheaper than an IPO. Now, why is that? because the SPAC shareholders historically, and I expect still today, are bearing all those costs. And the costs are very, very high. So now let me go back to the beginning. The, the focus of the analysis is on the dilution that is built into the SPAC structure, that's inherent in the SPAC structure. You know, briefly, there's the promote of 20%. That's dilutive. There are the warrants. So when a SPAC is set up initially, it's set up by a sponsor. The sponsor could be a private equity firm, or it could be just a few people. Could it be a, ba it be, could it be a basketball celebrity or a rock star? I was about to say football player. Colin Kaepernick, I just read, started one. And certainly it could be Shaquille O'Neal or any other number of people, uh, including congressmen. It can be anybody. And some of them are literally anybody, at least as far as I know. They're just some people who decided to, to do this. So they're a sponsor. They begin by creating an entity and provide that they will have a 20% interest in the equity of that entity following an IPO. Another way to put that is whatever the IPO is, they're going to get 25%. You add it together and you do the division. They end up post-IPO with 20% of the outstanding 
equity. That 20% is a cost of building a SPAC. Second cost, they have to go public and they have to attract investors in their IPO. How do they do that? They issue units. The units consist of one share and one warrant and sometimes a right. The warrants range from quarter of a share to a full share. The right pretty uniformly where it exists is a tenth of a share given for free at the time of a merger. So those rights and those warrants are thrown in to the unit with a share. Next step, the share is redeemable at the price of the unit. Now the price of the unit is uniformly $10. The share itself can be redeemed at the time of the merger for $10 plus accumulated interest. Leaving the IPO shareholder or IPO unit holder with their warrants for free and their rights for free. Those are costs of getting these people to set the company up as a public company. So you've got sponsor costs, warrant and right costs. Third, there's an underwriting fee, obviously. The fee is actually pretty reasonable in the IPO, but because the shares can be redeemed at the time of the merger, if you think of the underwriting cost as a fraction of non-redeemed shares, that underwriting cost is quite high. Add those together, the promote, the, the, the sponsor's 20% is called the promote, the warrants and the rights, the underwriting fee, and the fact that the shares can be redeemed at the time of the merger, you get tremendous dilution on a per share basis. So we found that cash per share is about $6.50 at the time of a merger for a share that purports to be worth $10. When you look through the SEC filings for those companies, is that $6.50 average or whatever it is for a particular transaction laid out? No, one can figure it out. And I'm interested to talk to Michael offline about how long it took him to look through these SEC filings. But I just asked my research assistant, who's quite bright, to try to compute that. She find it and compute it. She said it took six hours for one particular SPAC. So Mike is an economist. Pam and Michael are securities lawyers. Do you think under current law, the parties are required to disclose up front that, would you call it the dilution number, Michael? Are you required to disclose that or is that not required under current law and regulations? I think what Mike has described is accurate, which is that if you pour through the prospectus, you can find all of the various pieces of that. And so one can try to figure it out, albeit it's not particularly transparent or easy. There is a requirement to disclose certain dilution impacts or dilutive impact of an IPO, but I don't think that this is the kind of dilutive impact that is um, required to be disclosed. Do you think that the new SEC under President Biden is going to listen to this podcast and call Mike Klausner and say, could you please draft an amendment of the SK regs or whichever the applicable regs are? so that in the summary of the transaction at the front, they need to disclose that? Or are they going to conclude that the investors in these deals are sophisticated enough that they get it? 
I really do think that all of this information is in the prospectus. And so I think it's not clear to me how much more the SEC would require a company to do other than make estimates about how you evaluate each of the various components that Mike was talking about. And you think the SEC just isn't in the business of asking companies to make those kinds of estimates because they are difficult to make and subject to judgment. And frankly, if companies had to make them, they would caveat them. So it's not clear to me how much more helpful disclosure the SEC could require companies to make. Mike, do the shareholders of the target that will be acquired in the D-SPAC care about the dilution you've just laid out, or is it irrelevant to them? So that's the second finding of our, of our research. Who bears that cost of the dilution? depends on the terms negotiated in the merger. If the SPAC is treated by the parties as being worth $10, and there's a share exchange based on that $10 valuation, so for example, figuratively, the target is selling its shares for $10 in the merger to the combined company, if that happens, then the target will bear the cost because it's selling for 10, it's only getting $5 in cash hypothetically. On the other hand, if it looks at the SPAC and it says, I see you're only, you only have $5 in cash, I'm going to sell my shares to you for $5, then the SPAC shareholders are going to bear the cost. They're going to see $10 valuation before the merger. That's propped up by the redemption promise. And there's going to be a drop to $5 right after the merger. So Depending on that negotiation, either the SPAC shareholders or the target shareholders, or both, will bear the cost of that $5 dilution. Now, what did we find? We can't look at it at the terms of a deal and answer the question, so we looked at it statistically. And what we found was really startling. We found that the relationship between cash per share before the merger and share price after the merger were extremely tightly correlated so that a $5 per share SPAC before the merger was going to be worth $5 after the merger, which means that the SPAC shareholders bore the cost. And that's borne out in the poor returns to SPAC shareholders, you know, both in recent years, and again, I'm not talking about the last few months, I think it's at best too early to say, but going back historically, every year the average return to SPAC shareholders adjusted for market changes is negative going back 10 years. Okay, so let's pause there. Michael and Pam, when you've been negotiating DSPAC transactions, are there tangible discussions about what Mike Klausner just talked about? Instead of just talking about the acquisition, the merger price, is there a discussion about the stock value pre and post, and who will bear the cost of the transaction? Or does that not really happen in those negotiations? I don't think in the negotiations that we've had, I wouldn't say that those kinds of discussions come up. I mean, I, you know, Pam, I think that what comes up is, you know, optimism about the stock price going up after the deal closes. There's an earnout provision where the where the, the shareholders get more shares if the stock price hits Twelve fifty and fifteen and seventeen fifty and twenty, or you know some of the shares may vest as the stock price goes up. I think what people are very focused on is the future, 
and the stock price going up, I don't think that they are so focused on those other things. I agree with Michael, at least from my perspective, I typically represent targets. And on the target side, targets are always advised by a financial advisor. And there's a tremendous amount of modeling out of the various inputs into sort of the valuation and the price per share and who's bearing transaction expenses and how this all works out. So there is a phenomenal amount of time that is spent there, but I think it is much more focused, as Michael suggested, on the future, the impact of that on the SPAC shareholders, they don't think rises to the level that uh, of things that a target would consider. Let's go back to what Professor Klausner was just talking about in terms of the record of the returns to SPAC shareholders, which I think he was implying was less than robust. Do you have data on that, Mike? Yeah, I do. Um, in my paper, we, we report returns over the last 10 years, which as I said, are negative. And we have returns over for our sample period, which again is all of 2019 and half of 2020. And with one caveat that I'll, I'll, I'll mention in a moment, returns are terrible when adjusted for the market. Uh, let me go into my caveat, and then I'm going to try to relate that to the more recent period. The caveat is we split up our sample into uh, what we define as high-quality sponsors. It's a very rough cut, but we take private equity firms with assets under management over a billion and former executives of Fortune 500 companies, and we call them high-quality. On average, those high-quality sponsors do vastly better than everybody else. They do well on average, but their median is terrible. On average, they do well because there's some outliers that are in the news weekly. And we'll see if those outliers uh, you know, remain successful. But even for the high quality sponsors that we found in our period, the period we studied, their returns are really nothing to write home about. So Mike, when you talk about the non-high quality group, can you give the people listening a sense of how they've performed? Yeah. So let's take at the six month mark and we'll do it as excess returns over the Russell 2000. I've also got it excess returns uh, over the, an IPO index, but for various reasons, the Russell 2000 might be a more neutral adjustment. So for the non-high quality SPACs, the mean return over six months was negative 41%. The median return is negative 57%. So the obvious question, our listeners are pulling over to the side of the road and they're saying, if they're doing so poorly, why are they so hot? Why is the front page of the FT and the journal every day talking about the number of new SPACs if the performance is as bad as you've found? So I, I have an answer to that question the way you asked it. Why are we having new SPACs every day? New SPACs every day are potentially a good deal for the new SPAC IPO investors. They're going to get their money back. They're putting nothing at risk. They're going to get interest, albeit not very high. If the SPAC merges, they've got a warrant for free. And in our sample, the average value of a warrant was about $1.50. Some were $2.50, which they got for free. So... Today, one could look forward and say, gosh, I'm feeling a little bit uncertain with all these SPACs chasing on maybe too few targets. Things won't work out so well. So arguably, an IPO investor ought to be a little bit more concerned, but not concerned enough to forego the possibility of a zero downside risk with 
but historically been a tremendous upside. Another factor for an IPO investor is they can borrow a lot of that. Uh, I've been told 80% of their investment in IPO can be borrowed. So, you know, on a leveraged basis, you got 11% return leveraged with 80% debt, you're starting to get into a pretty decent return. So I think even if the longer term future is not so good for SPACs at the merger stage, I think we're going to continue seeing IPOs until the music stops at the other end. We're going to come back to the music stopping in a minute. Are there any regularities regarding which SPACs do better than others? Is is it what you just talked about? It's the high quality sponsors, the one we've, we've described as high quality, which tend to be the larger ones. We can't untangle that. Some people in the market are saying large SPACs are bigger than small SPACs. Large SPACs are also with our high quality sponsors. I can't untangle those two factors. You did your work through June 30th of year one of the COVID. Do you have any reason to think that if you extended it beyond the middle of last year, that the conclusions would have changed? I don't think COVID mattered because we're looking at the market and returns, you know, until today. The, the numbers I gave you were updated until a few weeks ago, not, not, not that long ago. You know, a couple of days ago, I can't remember the name of this SPAC, but there were rumors that it was going to merge with an electric vehicle company and the prices shot up, I don't know, 200%, something, something like that. And we've seen that repeatedly. Nobody knew what the terms of the merger were going to be, but they thought electric vehicle company SPAC will bid up the price. So I think the price, if we were to look at prices, say, three-month prices for SPACs that that merged in you know, September, October, now November, I think we'd find very different numbers. But my bet would be that wait for these to perform for a year, maybe two, if their targets are going to you know, build a spaceship that goes to Mars, it might take some time. But I think eventually the market will catch up with their actual returns. And I don't believe the valuations today. I want to close by talking about disclosures, which ultimately are, that's the business Pam and Michael are in. And then where Mike Klausner sees potential litigation in the event that SPAC performance deteriorates. So first for Michael and Pam on the disclosure front, how do you compare the de-SPACing process, which you've been through repeatedly, to the IPO communications with shareholders, which you've done even more of? The big difference between the IPO and the SPAC process is is projections. In an IPO process, you, you don't directly and specifically market with your projections. In a SPAC uh, marketing process where you're, you're, you're raising pipe equity and, and selling your your shares on a, on a private basis to pipe investors and, and, and trying to convince investors in the market not to redeem and trying to convince other investors to come into the company. The, the, you're using your projections. The, the company is, is, is using them, is putting them on, on, their, on their website, is filing them with the SEC, and it is including them in some cases in, in the proxy statement or registration statement that they're filing with the SEC. It's all public. And it's a big difference. I mean, the, the reason for the difference is that in an IPO, underwriters have, you know, something called Section 11 liability, and they're they're very worried about, you know, their liability. And so that, that people just don't want to take any risk on projections. 
in a SPAC transaction, you know, there's no underwriter. So th- there's less of a concern on that Section 11 liability. And and so the practice has, you know, evolved that people use their projections to sell. And some of the projections are very, very, you know, buoyant and positive. And they help make valuations higher because you can value company based on how their performance is going to be in the future. And for some of the companies and some of the industries like electric vehicles, you know, the future is looking very bright. And so some of these projections are very, very bright. And, and that's really led to, you know, significant high, higher valuations. The actual rules for the disclosure are not different other than the projections for the, you know, normal IPO and the and the SPAC transaction. All those disclosures that you put into your public filings, the rules are actually the same. And, you know, an IPO probably has a little bit more, but your fundamental narrative disclosures and your fundamental financial disclosures are very similar between the two. I want to close, because I'm a litigator, I always look on the dark side of life and assume that there's a wave of litigation that's going to come down the road when, if it is a SPAC bubble, it either bursts or deflates. Mike Klausner, if you put on your sort of plaintiff-oriented, investor-oriented hat, where do you think the likely claims in connection with SPAC and DSPAC transactions will arise? Well, first, I think it's going to come at the DSPAC uh, transactions. Um, not much to disclose in a SPAC IPO, and, and there's a redemption rate that keeps the share value above the IPO price anyway. But in the DSPAC, number one, if there's an implication that the shares are worth $10, my question is, is there enough there to allow an investor to say, well, if we're talking about cash, no, and therefore I'll ignore this purported $10 value, or I'll assume that this purported $10 value, you know, reflects the magic of the sponsor working with the post-merger company to create value, you know, or perhaps it reflects just the great deal that the SPAC has made with the target, but I've got I've got concerns about any implication that the shares of a SPAC are worth ten dollars heading into a merger. Second, Pam talked about this too. As I said, it takes me some hours to figure out the dilution. One reason for that, as I think Michael, maybe you and I can commiserate offline at some point, these filings are not well written. And trying to track a fact from one to the other is an enormous challenge. I mean, I would do things like put in, I find a discrepancy of $1.76 million once, literally. I put a search term in and I said, oh, I ended up in the, in, the, in the footnotes of a financial to get that, figure out that discrepancy. So a court will have to decide if it's litigated whether it's enough to provide disclosure of the raw material to calculate dilution. In contrast, say, to a table that says, here's the dilution, and here it is contingent on redemptions, because it will be contingent. If we have 20% redemption, here's gonna be, here's the dilution. If we have 40%, here's the dilution. I believe it wouldn't surprise me if the SEC doesn't come out with some sort of guidance that asks for that. But we'll see. You know, here's a third one. There's commonly a disclosure that says that the SPAC sponsor 
make side payments to public shareholders in exchange for a commitment not to redeem. That's a great disclosure, but I haven't yet seen an amended proxy or anything else that comes back and says, well, we just paid off these guys. So should that be required? To me, if you've got to pay off a major shareholder to not uh, redeem for $10, that's pretty important to those shareholders who are not going to redeem or are thinking about not redeeming. So that, that would be the, the other one. Those are the main ones. I, I sometimes wonder, but this could be my suspicious nature as an academic. You often see pipe investments where the pipe investor is not disclosed. I kind of wonder who they are. Do they have an affiliation with the sponsor? If it's a, if it's a close affiliation, you do often see that disclosed. But do they have other dealings with the sponsor? Is there a quid pro quo behind the scenes? I, I'd like to see a rule that says, if there is, you got to tell us about it. So that would be the third, but perhaps I'm getting too suspicious with, with that one. For all of the friends and clients of the firm who have listened, I think you can see why Stanford Law School is the top law school in America right now. Your insights into this, Mike Klausner, are they're both innovative, but also they're very real world, which we don't always see when a, when a law professor digs his or her teeth into something. So thank you for sharing them with us. I'm positive that you and Mike Levitt and Pam Marcolese are going to collaborate on future work in this area to analyze them. And for those who've stayed till the end, we'll be sure to make it easy for you to link to Professor Klausner's academic work on this and to Mike Levitt and Freshfield's analysis. Thank you very much for joining us.